The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. I want to start off tonight with a story that when I was a youth pastor I came in contact with, and it's a story of a kingdom that existed many, many years ago. We would even call it an ancient kingdom. At the very center was this, this well-established um, king, and as his kingdom began to grow, they encountered opposition from various you know, governors and, and people all around. And so he brought in his generals, he brought in his counselors, and they devised a strategy, a plan on how to spread his kingdom through war. And, and what they would do is he would take his best generals and he would send them to each of these, these, these other uh, realms, parts of his kingdom, and there they would do battle. And then as, as, as one general experienced victory, he would simply roll his forces over to the next and to the next and to the next so that by the end of the battle that they would have the best and the totality of their forces against, against the last kingdom. So as they went out, he would receive reports, obviously, as to how the battle was going. And he would hear from time to time about this king who, who, who entered into the battle with his soldiers, with his warriors, that he would be the one who would lead the battle, not like all the other kingdoms who the kings stayed back and, you know, and, and they would oversee the battle. Listen, this king entered into the battle. So again and again, they would hear, you know, we, we're, we're having success, we're having success, we're having, except when it would come to this king, they called him the Babylonian king, the ferocious king. With him, we can't seem to, to make any headway. Well, finally, when all of the forces were, were, were going against the, the, uh, the ferocious or the Babylonian king, word came back that they had, they had, they had defeated him. And he, he said, the only thing I want you to do is I want you to bring him to me. I, I want to meet him. I want to see what's so different about him than all the other kings that we've done battle against. And so finally the day came where the king, the ferocious king, the Bab Babylonian king, was brought into the, into the palace, and he waited. And not only had they brought the king, but they brought his wife and his son. And as they were waiting, finally they were brought in before the king, was not allowed to make eye contact or to speak, but he simply stood there, looking down, knowing that he was defeated, and knowing with all certainty that he would surely die. And so the king, the victorious king, said, I'm going to ask you a couple of questions. And how you answer these questions is going to determine as to what, how I, what I will do with you. And he said, bring forth the son. And so the guards brought forth the son, put the son in the middle, and he said, for your son, for your son's life, what will you do for me? And the ferocious king said, for my son, I will serve you. I will serve you with all of my heart and with all of my soul. For my son, I will serve you. And then the king just kind of made motion to the ferocious king, and he, he himself went forward. And he said, for your life, for your life, what will you give me? He says, if you will spare my life, I will fight for you as I have never fought before. And then this, the king stepped back. And then he, he motioned for the wife to be brought forward. And the wife was there standing before the, the, the victorious king. And he said, and for her life, what will you give me? And the ferocious king looked down and then looked into the king's face, something he was not supposed to do. And he spoke directly to him and he said, for my wife's life, I will die. I will exchange my life for her life. Well, the king and his family were ushered out of the throne room and they're waiting to hear what the, what, what the outcome would be. When they were alone, he turned to his wife and he said, did you see him? Did you see his throne? I've never seen a throne like that in all of my life. Did you see him? Did you see the crown upon his head? Did you see the crown upon his head? Did you see his clothes? Even as, this, as the light came in, it reflected off of his clothes. And the wife said, I did not see him. I did not see him. I did not see his throne. And I did not see his crown. I did not see his clothing. 
And he said, well, then, did, did, you see his, did you see his generals, how they were lined up on both sides of him? Did you see his counselors? Did you see those who give him counsel, those who give him spiritual counsel? Did you see them? There were so many. Did you see how when he asked a question, they would lean over and gently speak into his ear? And the wife said, I did not see his generals, nor did I see his counselors, nor did I see how he interacted with those who would give him wisdom. I did not see them. And then the king in frustration said, how could you not? We were both standing there right before him. How could you not see them? And she said these words, listen, I could not see the king, nor could I see anything in that room because I stood in the presence of a man who would lay down his life for me. And he was the only person I could see. You see, the title of tonight's Bible study is The Redeemer. And I want you to see tonight, I'm going to talk a lot about Boaz, the kinsman redeemer. I'm going to talk a lot about Ruth. But tonight, I want you to see a God who would die for you. I want you to see our Redeemer. I don't want you only to learn Old Testament history. I don't want you to learn uh, Jewish laws and traditions. Those are wonderful. But if you miss our Redeemer, if you have your eyes on anyone or anything else, you miss the entirety of the story of the book of Ruth. Our takeaway tonight is the Spirit changes our hearts. You and I are only changed, we are only transformed by the indwelling presence of the Spirit in our lives. This isn't something that we can do for ourselves. This isn't a, a New Year's resolution. This isn't something that you and I, you know, we get the right book or we listen to the right podcast or we follow the right trainer or the right mentor. This isn't something that you and I can do in and of ourselves. This is something that God is committed to doing in your life and my life. The Spirit changes our hearts. What do you mean by that, Daniel? You don't call me Daniel. You call me Danny. What do you mean by that, Danny? Well, I'm glad you asked. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul says these words. In verse 18, he says that you and I are being changed. We're being transformed by God's Word and God's Spirit that our nature, our character is becoming more like Christ Jesus. Boaz is the hero of the story, but remember, your redeemer. He is a bright spot in the pages of Scripture. As a matter of fact, in Matthew chapter, five, chapter 1, verse 5, the genealogy includes Boaz. Let me read that to you again. Matthew 1, 5, the lineage of the Messiah. Matthew is arguing that Jesus is being the Messiah and his right, his right to the throne, David's throne, where it says, in Solomon, the father of Boaz... By Rahab, should be a name that's familiar to you, and Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth, the Ruth of our story, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and many of, of the writer's uh, original hearers would hear the father of David. I want you to know that his character, pay attention to his character and Ruth's character. They're exemplary. His word is sure. That is, when you spoke to Boaz and you made an agreement, that was the end of the conversation. You knew that he would follow through on whatever he told you. His reputation was well known. What we know about Boaz is seen, listen, is seen in his treatment of Ruth. Listen, actions speak much louder than words. Last week, we saw that he greatly valued Ruth's loyalty to her mother-in-law, Naomi. So then Boaz made room for her to glean alongside his harvesters. I wonder if we appreciate or understand that generosity is certainly a virtue. It is certainly, when we understand our God, when we understand his provision, generosity is a virtue, not a weakness. I also want to point you to the fact that Boaz used his position in life, used his power, used his finances, used his position, not to push people down, but to include the poor in his harvest. He made, and I'll say this again later, he made room for people. Do you know that's, that is a picture of the church? Do you know that's a picture of the Christian? We make room for people. We include people. 
As a matter of fact, I've known high school students back in my youth pastor days who would intentionally search out students who were eating lunch by themselves, listen, to include them. There was something within them that didn't, now certainly if somebody wanted to eat lunch by themselves, they didn't bring them kicking and screaming over to the group. But there's, when you see, when you have that motivation, when you have that desire to include somebody, it's reflective of your God. In fact, when Solomon built the temple in Jerusalem, his father David was not allowed to. He desired to, but he was not allowed to. And so the building of the temple, that wonderful privilege, fell to Boaz, or to Solomon. It's important for you to know that 2 Chronicles 3.17 tells us that there were two large pillars at the entrance of the temple. On one, on on the very top, was written the name Jachin, and on the other, Boaz. Boaz Boaz-like character marked worship. Just, just, Just ponder that for a minute. Boaz's character as people made their way into the temple to offer their sacrifice, to sing and to worship like you do. On, on, the ten, on, the, on the feast days, as they made there, they would walk in between these two large pillars. And their, wor- their worship, whatever that looked like, however it appeared, was marked by Boaz-like character. So tonight we return to the Judean hills. Elevations about 2,500 feet above sea level. If, if you look out to the east, you see, you see, today you would see Jordan, but you're looking across the, the Jordan Valley, but you would see the country of Jordan. If you would look to the west, you would see the Mediterranean. And it is here that we return to the fields that surround Bethlehem. It's important for you to know tonight as we get into our Bible study that behind the scenes, God of, the God of Israel is moving to redeem two widows. Let me press pause here. God is always up to something. God is always up to something. He's always working in our lives. Whether we, like Ruth and Naomi, cannot see it in the moment, he is moving. He is working. I I know. I'll be the first to admit. It's a little slow sometimes for me. You know, he he kind of pushes the envelope regarding my patience. But as I look back on my 66 years, I will tell you with all certainty, He is always on time. Before we begin, I want to remind you of two things regarding the law or the principle of redemption. That a redeemer, that is the individual who would redeem a family member, they must be able to. Their relationship to the individual that needs to be redeemed had to be established. We were told last week that Elimelech had a relative named Boaz. And so by, just by virtue of their being, being related, Boaz was a candidate to redeem. But not only, not only did ability mean that there was a close relation, they had to be able to pay the price of redemption. The second thing I want you to know is they had to be willing. They had to be willing to redeem. As we will see in chapter 3, There was one relative who was near the Boaz, but he didn't want to redeem Ruth because he didn't want to put his inheritance in jeopardy. So then he did, listen, he declined. He declined. He said no. And you'll see it when we get there. He takes off the sandal off of his foot and he gives it to Boaz. We believe saying that now, now that I've rejected the opportunity to marry Ruth and to redeem the land uh, of Elimelech, I give you the right to walk on the land that I'm rejecting. So he had to be able, he had to be willing. Boaz was both able and willing to redeem Ruth. And so as we begin tonight, I want you to think about this. I've talked about the character of Jesus. I talked about the Redeemer, talked about the character of Boaz. I want to look at our character for a moment. For you see, the Spirit changes our hearts. It is by the Spirit of God that our hearts are changed, that our characters transformed. I want to read you a portion of an article that I heard this week in a podcast. It's written by James Russell Miller, a Presbyterian pastor who lived in, from 1840 to 1912. Listen to these words. The, the terminology 
is a little dated, but listen to these words. He's talking about building a life. He's talking about building a life, but the metaphor is a house. So listen to this. Old age is the harvest of all the years that have gone before. It is the barn into which all the sheaves are gathered. It is the sea into which all the rills and rivers of life flow from their springs in the hills and valleys of youth and of manhood. We are each in our early years building the house in which we shall have to live in when we grow old. And we may make it a prison or we may make it a palace. Later on in the article, he says this. The important practical question is this. How can we live so that in our old age, when it comes, shall be a beautiful and happy time? It will not do to adjourn this question until the evening shadows are upon us. It will then be too late to consider it. So as we look at the character and the nature of Jesus tonight, as we look at the character and nature of Boaz, the obvious question is, is our character being changed and transformed into the image of Jesus? Not by a list of rules and regulations, not by me trying to do better, but by me inviting the Spirit to work in my heart and my mind. Let me tell you this, the same God who spoke who spoke creation into existence is now actively working in your heart and in your mind. My friends, there is no burden upon your shoulders. There is simply, there is simply this. Are you willing to turn to the Spirit tonight and say, please change and transform me? Well, let's get into this, Boaz and Ruth. Now, this is the couple. This is the couple. This, this is the man who's probably older than her, and this is the woman. This is a man with stellar reputation. We've already established that. But this is a woman whose reputation is no less stellar. She is amazing. She is absolutely amazing. So we see that they have a meal shared. I need to tell you that I met my wife when we were 15 years old. It was a couple of years ago, absolutely. We met at Vista High School in algebra. I was a goofball, never brought a pencil to class, rarely brought my book, and, and she was more studious. Uh, there were times that I really enjoyed math, I really enjoyed algebra. For the most part, my teacher endured me, okay? But I remember that I didn't have, and this, is, this is a bit of a confession, I express my interest in Wanda to a dear friend. Actually, he's a friend to this day. And so he's the one that went and asked her for her phone number. And so he brings me her phone number and he says, call her. And so in that I didn't want to call her from my house, I went down to the local gas station, dropped a dime into the payphone. I know, I mean, I know some of you can relate. Some of you have absolutely no idea what I'm talking about. I dial her number, I'm perspiring, I am nervous. You know, I, I don't know what I'm gonna do. And of all things, her father picks up the phone. Hello? I go, oh, may I speak to Wanda? She's eating dinner, call back later. That cost me a dime. So, so do you persevere? I mean, you're gonna roll the dice? I mean, you know, I'm thinking things like, well, she wouldn't have given Walter her number if she didn't want me to call her. And so I dropped the dime in, and you know, 15 years old, the conversation isn't fluid so much, a lot of, you know, just, you know, how are you doing, you know, how, what'd you have for dinner, you know, that kind of thing. But then there comes a time that you go out, right? You need to know that my wife introduced this Hispanic young man back then to pizza. I'd never eaten pizza before. She introduced me to a dinner salad. I'd never eaten a dinner salad before. But... I can tell you, I introduced her to burritos. That was something, it was interesting to watch somebody who had never eaten a burrito before. You know, if you don't hold them just right, you'll have a, an overflowing to be sure. But tonight we see, listen, we see Boaz invite Ruth to dinner, a meal. Can you think of anything that bonds us together than sitting down and eating together? 
sharing a meal together. In verse 14 it says, And at mealtime Boaz said to her, So in addition to all that has happened, this is all one day, chapter 2 is all one day, it's all, for the majority it's out in the fields. And he invited her, he said, Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel into the wine. It, it is likely that during the harvest they would they would drive some poles into the ground right there, right beside the harvest field, and they would, they would put something to provide shade. There would be a mat that would be laid down, and the servants would, bring, would take some of the barley that was being harvested and roast it. That's exactly what's taking place here. And then for lunchtime, everybody would come over, and, and, and the invitation, as far as Ruth is concerned and as far as Boaz is concerned, according to the custom of the day, you invited family to come and to eat with you. Within the Eastern mind, listen, within the Eastern mind, relationship is built upon sharing a meal together. And so although to you and I this looks like, you know, an opportunity to have lunch, in their minds this is much more. Looking back at verses 8 through 12, Again, the chapter is better read all together at one time. We, we initially hear Boaz, listen, we initially hear Boaz lift his voice and give public affirmation to Ruth's faith in the God of Israel as it is seen in her commitment to Naomi. She gleaned throughout the morning, that is, she worked, she labored in the sun throughout the morning. And the only reason she's here is to provide food for her mother-in-law and for herself. I want, to just, I want you to think about this. This is something I haven't touched on thus far. As Ruth and Naomi come into town and they communicate, Naomi communicates to, them, to the people of Bethlehem that Elimelech and her two sons are dead, I want you to stop and think for a moment. This is not a large community. We've established that. These people are related and friends. And so for them to hear the news that although Naomi was with them, they would never see Elimelech, Kilion, or Malon again, it devastated them. The community felt the loss. I think for time to time, within a state or a region or a nation, we hear news about something and we feel the weight of it because something has happened to, you know, to, to our extended family, our church family, you know, you know, to, to our community. We feel that is exactly what's happening in Bethlehem. But I want you to even to think about this, that it would have impacted Elimelech, I mean Boaz as well. Elimelech was a relative. They were probably about the same age. They lived life together. And when he hears the news, listen, when he hears the news about the loss of his relative, it caused him to move in the direction of providing for Elimelech's survivors. Keep in mind that generosity, the generosity that we see here in the pages of the book of Ruth, listen, that the generosity that we see here is mirrored in God's generosity to you and me. It's important for you and I to know that our Redeemer has given us the Holy Spirit. He is God, and He is your constant companion on the road to the fulfillment of our redemption. So I want you to think about this. I'm going to, I'm going to reach over into the New Testament. I'm going to reach over to Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus. And what I'm about to talk about next is what God has given to you. We can see a meal prepared. We can see uh, generosity uh, given to a, to a widow who's, who, who is gleaning. Listen, we can understand that. We can see. We can say that is good. That's something that I, that's, I want to be like that. I want to be, I, I want to include. I want to, to welcome people in. That's what I want to be like. But I want to also point to our Redeemer who has given us the indwelling of the Spirit. And I'm going to be careful with my terminology because in, in various church cultures, these words can mean so much more. But in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13 and 14, Paul says, In him that is in Christ, that is your spiritual position. If you are, in a, if you are a Christian, 
And I apologize for this. Most of the time, churches, we focus in on our condition. That is on what I'm dealing with today. But Paul wants you to know, no, there is a spiritual position that that the things that are true about Jesus are now true about you. Listen to what I'm saying. That the things that are true about Jesus are right now true about you because you are in Christ. If you get theological, you say you're not an Adam anymore. You became born again. But listen to these words. In him you also all-inclusive. When you heard, past tense, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, believed in the Redeemer, believed in Jesus, what happened then? You were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Promised in that in the Old Testament, God said, I'm going to send my spirit, and he's going to be upon all people, all flesh, the young, the old, men, women, Rich, poor, educated, uneducated, there's coming a time when the Spirit will come and inhabit upon all people. It wouldn't be restricted to, the, to only the prophet or only the king. The promised Spirit, that is, we realize that promise currently, who is the guarantee, the Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Just a couple, just a couple minutes. So we're looking at this barley field. We're looking at generosity. But I want you to know, as you sit here tonight, God has given you the Spirit. And the Spirit is committed to be with you and to stay with you regardless of what happens. As believers, we're told that we have been sealed with the Spirit. Letters were written on parchment. And so I write my letter and and identify myself at the beginning. It's not like... It's not like letters today. And so I take the parchment and I'm writing out and say, so Danny Ramos too. And I put your name in there. And then I write the letter out, write it out, write it out. Then when the ink is dried, I take the parchment, the papyri, and I roll it up. So that when you open it, the first thing you see is my name or my greeting. So I roll it up. I go over to my candle. And in order to seal it, seal the scroll, I drop a little bit of uh, liquefied wax on it. Listen, from the candle. And then I take my signet ring. I don't have a signet ring. This is a wedding ring. April 26, 1975. That's right. I will remember that because it's written on the inside of this ring. January 31st, 1956. If I was a car, I'd be a classic. I'd be a Chevrolet. I'll tell you right now. Now listen. So I take that ring that has my, my signet ring upon it, and I press it into the wax, and I send it on its way. And then when you receive it, you see my mark upon that letter, and you know that Danny Ramos has sent me. Nobody else can read it because that letter belongs to me but I'm giving it to you. You break the wax and you unroll it. Paul is saying that you have been sealed by God with the Holy Spirit. He has sealed you. You belong to him. It's the idea of a possession. And so if I'm going to ship some boxes, you know, know, to the other side of the United States in the first century, my boxes would be down at the dock. I would go over and I would place my seal upon that, meaning that no matter where that is, even though we're separated by distance, that is my possession. And when I arrive there and go to pick up my merchandise, I will prove that that is mine by the signet reel. Paul says, signet ring. Paul says that the indwelling of the Spirit in you, presence of the Spirit in your life, means that you belong to God. Listen. Assuring you, assuring you that you belong to him. You belong to him. You belong to him. And that he will complete his work in your life. Come on now, listen to me. It's not that you will complete his work in your life. It is that he will complete his work in your life. Listen, if I do anything, if I do anything, I yield and surrender my life to the work of the Spirit. But the work is sure. 
you will not be presented before the throne of God lacking anything. The idea is perfection. Another word we could grab is complete. You, you will be complete. So when I'm in algebra class, they would start the equation way up here. They, you know, a couple of letters and numbers. But if you watch that teacher, because she knew what she was doing, Mrs. Willer, she knew what she was doing. And you come at the end of the class, that equation would be all the way down here and X would equal whatever. That, that equation is complete. It's perfect. It's been worked out. And that is what the Spirit is committed to doing in you. Working out Christ's character in you. Verse 14. I'm sorry, let me read from Philippians 1.6. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Verse 14. Boaz makes room. I've already referred to this. He makes room for Ruth in the same way that God has made room for you, in the same way that you and I make room for other people, in the same way that we look around a room for that one person by themselves and we go over and reach out to them. As we see Ruth sit down, I want you to understand the contrast with at the beginning of the day, she was hoping to find kindness given to her by somebody allowing her to glean in the field. And look where she's sitting at lunchtime. I want you to see what happens when we do what we can. She didn't sit home and complain. And she didn't, she, she didn't go down to the well and tell you, you know, my husband died, I'm here with my mother-in-law, this is terrible, I don't know that I'll ever get married. You see, I was married for 10 years and I didn't have a child. Who would want to marry me? No, she entered into God's harvest field. She did what she could. And on the very day, she meets Boaz. And on the very day, my friends, he provides a meal for her. Verse 14, notice with me, that Ruth ate until she was satisfied. Remember reference a couple of weeks ago? Remember when, 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 when Naomi told Orpah and Ruth, I pray that you will go and find rest in the home of your husband? That's what being satisfied is. It means finding a place where you're filled and have rest. Remember we made reference to the tabernacle finding its rest in Jerusalem. Remember we made reference to the children of Israel finding their rest in the land of promise. She finds rest as she does what she can in the fields of Boaz. Verse 15, Boaz commands his workers to do two things. Let her glean among the sheaves. That is, the sheaves would be the, the bundles of grain that have been wrapped with twine. He says, let her come up and glean where she's not supposed to. Allow her to glean among the harvested bundles of grain. Secondly, verse 16, pull out some of the bundles for her. Another way to say this is to intentionally drop grain from the sheaves. He wants her to gather as much grain as possible. Before we move on to the next section, think about this. He is stewarding what is his. He is using his authority He's using that which is his to bless somebody who is in need. When we give, you know, there's just one thing here. When we give, is it always money? When, when we give, can it be time, attention? When we give, can, can, can it be that we would give our ear to somebody who nobody really listens to or gives, gives re honor or respect to? When we give, when we give, we mirror God's heart. When we give, we worship. So we see Boaz and Ruth, the next section is a generous portion. Verses 17 and 18, a generous portion. So she gleaned in the field until evening. That is the conclusion of the day. Then she beat out. The idea is that she beat out or she threshed what she had gleaned. Uh, a story in, this, in this, these two verses transitioned to Bethlehem. Ruth worked until the end of the day. She put in a full day. Stop and think about 12 hours from the time the sun came up. So she would have made her, her way to the fields as the sun was rising. And now is the sun setting. 
She has worked in the fields of Boaz. To beat out, beat out the grain means that she separated the, the husk from the kernel of barley. The process included pounding the grain with a wooden hammer. This is at the end of the day, or with a stick. Now, I'm going to be the first to admit that measurements within the Bible can be something that's hard to dial in precisely, but an ephah, an ephah generally by scholars is believed to be about 30 pounds. Just stop and think about this, 30 pounds. To put this into perspective, a worker's daily ration was one to two pounds of grain, of threshed grain. So then we see provision, we see generosity. In reality, she collected almost half a month's wages in a solitary day. And then she arrives at home. Her mother-in-law, verse 18, saw what she had gleaned. All day long, Naomi's at home wondering, well, you know, she left and didn't come back immediately. That means she must have found somebody who would let her work. Well, you know, it's lunchtime and she hasn't come back. Well, maybe, you know, somebody has let her work in the field longer than we expected. And then, you know, the afternoon came and she's looking down the road like, where is Ruth coming yet? No, she's not. And then the sun begins to set and she's wondering, did something happen to her? Was she taken advantage of? And when Ruth appears in the doorway, she's carrying a large amount of grain. And listen, and Naomi understands. Naomi understands. This is a turning point, turning point in the story. She understands that Ruth has experienced kindness. She doesn't know from who, but that she has experienced kindness from somebody in the harvest fields. Oh. I want to share with you what I think happened. That you and I see a pile of, of grain. I wouldn't know what to do with it. I, I, I wouldn't, you know, I know, like, what do you do with this stuff? You know, how, how do you get the bread or the tortillas? I mean, how does this thing work? But, but would you stop and consider for a moment that as she sees the pile of grain, it speaks to her. And she realizes that her daughter-in-law has been gone all day, that she's found favor and kindness and generosity, that it speaks to her, that the grain speaks to her, that God speaks to her through the grain. He says no to her imagining that God is against her. You and I sometimes view circumstances and interpret them as to though God is against us, as she did the losing of her husband and her sons and coming back empty. But the grain speaks to her. And God says, I am not against you. I am not against you. And as you would sit here tonight, God would tell you, I am not against you. I am for you. But God, the circumstances, I am am not against you. I am for you. Mark this in your mind. No angelic messenger speaking wondrous revelation. No cloud of glory or parting of the sea. Yet God speaks to Naomi. The grain says, the famine in your life is over. There's a wonderful experience I had when I was a young believer. I wasn't a church kid. I was 22 years old. Wanda and I got married when we were 19. We were 22 years old. We lived in Vista, the same neighborhood that I was raised in. My friends lived all around us. And I had, a, I had an experience that caused me to be born again. It, it involved no other person. And I, I'm not going to share it. For the sake of time, I'm not going to share it with you tonight. But I had this experience where I was born again. And if you would ask me, what happened to you? What made you change? I wouldn't have been able to explain it to you in the moment. Looking back, obviously, I know theologically, you know, biblically what had happened to me. But in the moment, I didn't know what happened to me. All I know is that I changed on the inside. And much of the behavior that I participated for most of my life, the desire simply went by the wayside. And after I'd been walking with the Lord, I'd say a month or two. And again, I didn't even know what I was doing. I had this experience with the Holy Spirit. 
I had this time of praying for my friends because I knew that if they experienced what I experienced, that their lives would dramatically change. Didn't know the Bible. We, we barely started going to church. I felt like a fish. I didn't know where to sit. I didn't have the right Bible. I, 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 I didn't, you know, it was so new to me. But it was also so invigorating and so, and so powerful. But I remember praying one day, and as I'm praying, the Spirit of God came upon me. And I already had the Spirit indwelling in me, Ephesians chapter 1. But listen, but the Spirit came, listen, the Spirit came upon me. And as I was praying for my friends, I began to speak in a language that I didn't understand. In Luke chapter 24, Jesus speaks of the empowering of the Spirit. Previously, we spoke of the indwelling Spirit, His commitment to change and transform you into the image of Jesus. I believe that what I'm about to read from you, to you from Luke chapter 24, verse 49, is the empowering of the Spirit. And Jesus said to His disciples, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father. Same terminology, promise, something looked to. Behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city, Jerusalem, until you have been clothed with power from on high. These fellows knew religion. I got to tell you, these fellows know religion. How do you know that, Danny? Because when Peter is at Joppa and he's praying on the roof, and this big sheet comes down and has all these unclean animals, one of the things that Peter says to God, not so, God, I have never, ever eaten unclean food. And so then we have this Jesus speaking to these men who come out of very, very, very ritualistic religion. But listen, he says, but there's something more. If Paul referenced the reality of the Spirit's indwelling at our conversion, Jesus here speaks of the Spirit's empowering for ministry. Did he recognize that he wanted them to influence the world on their own, with their own ability, with their own strength? Or did he recognize that you and I need the Holy Spirit to empower us? If Paul spoke of a spiritual reality regarding our identity, Jesus speaks of the Father's promise of gracious giving, gifting to serve. Gracious gifting to serve. This is welcome news to those who understand that we cannot live the Christian life on our own strength. You know, as I referenced in next week's uh, prayer time, uh, worship night, one of the things Pastor Daniel wanted me, wants you to know is that we're going to have a time of praying for people to be empowered or baptized in the Spirit. Bible nerds point to prepositions. The Spirit within, the indwelling Spirit. The Spirit upon, the empowering Spirit. A seal or mark versus being clothed or covered. Both are for you. Both are for me. Both are promised. Listen, both are promised by the Father previously to Christ's death, burial, and resurrection and ascension. But both are a reality in our lives now. In Ephesians 5.18, And do not get drunk with wine, which, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Be filled or continue to be filled with the Spirit. Let's go ahead and look at our last section. Boaz and Ruth, a Redeemer revealed. And her mother-in-law said to her, so now there's a dialogue between the two of them. Where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Now, she doesn't know it's Boaz. Listen, she doesn't know it's Boaz, but she recognizes that Ruth has been blessed by the kindness of somebody. The grain leads to two related questions, the where's, the where did you glean and where have you worked? The answer hints redemption. Redemption is pictured. Notice with me that Naomi blesses a man who took notice to her. He's unknown at this time, but the idea is that he paid attention or he gave a place to Ruth. I want to remind you something. Our actions have the power to impart hope to others. That your actions and my actions, the way we treat people, has the power to give them hope, has the power to lift them up. And then Ruth tells, him in, tells Naomi in verse 19, the man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. 
Ruth knows. She's heard his voice. She's eaten a meal with him. She's heard not only, listen, heard not only will he be with his workers and his harvesters, and we will see not only for the barley harvest, but also for the wheat harvest. Ruth knows that Boaz is kind. Naomi knows him. She knows that he is good. And you and I tonight know that Boaz is like Jesus. Jesus is kind. He is good. Jesus does not condemn you. Jesus does not judge you. Jesus died for you. There's a verse probably through the whole pandemic that I've cling to and ran over my mind where Jesus says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Verse 21, Ruth recalls his words. You shall keep close to my young men until they have finished my harvest. I'm sorry, until they have finished all my harvest. The words speak of provision, of all the harvest that he would have, Ruth would have a place. Just a couple more thoughts and then we'll conclude. So during a very long day, I said 12 hours, sun's barely coming up, the sun's going down. She threshes the grain, she's excited. She doesn't know who Boaz is, but Naomi does. So she's working the grain, and in her mind, she knows that a part of lunch, after she was satisfied, she held some grain of the roasted grain back with the intent of giving it to Naomi as she gets home. So she's excited. And then she, she has this large quantity of, 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 the, of the, the grain that had been, that had been gleaned. And, and so she has this bundle that she's carrying back home. And, and Ruth's heart is filled with joy. Her heart's filled with joy. And as she comes into the home, and all Naomi has to do is see her, see the grain. Her heart is filled with hope and joy. So during a long day, doing what she could, Ruth's future changes in a day, in a moment. She doesn't complain about her circumstances. She receives God's provision, trusting in God's wisdom, the, the gleaning. To some, this doesn't make sense. In moments of discouragement, look to our Redeemer. That's what she tell you tonight. When you're discouraged, when you lack, look to your Redeemer. Look to your Redeemer. Look to the one. Don't see anything else, none of your circumstances. Ruth would say, like, like the wife of the ferocious king, don't see the throne. Don't see the man upon the throne. Don't see his counselors. Don't see his generals. Don't see his warriors. Tonight, look to the one who would die for you. Look to the one who will die for you. And whatever your circumstances, hope will arise. In Zechariah chapter 4, verse 6, the prophet says, The word of the Lord is Zerubbabel, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. So we're, we're done. So some people say this, look, look, this is a Christian walk, it's a Christian life, and they're just charging, they're just running. And other people say, no, 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 you're going to fall down, Danny, be careful, so just walk fast. This is a Christian life, just moving along, growing spiritually, getting it all down. No, this is a Christian life, taking a little slower, a little shuffle. My friends... Sometimes a Christian life is running. Sometimes a Christian life is walking fast. Sometimes a Christian life is slowly making your way down the path. But in all honesty, I have to tell you that sometimes the Christian life, in the most difficult of times, isn't running. It isn't walking fast. It isn't walking at all. Sometimes the best thing that you can do is to see your Redeemer and refuse, listen, and refuse and refuse to look in any other direction. You can't walk, but you can stand. To look at him and refuse. Maybe you can't walk, maybe you can't run, 
Maybe you're looking around and all the Christians seem to be sprinting as far as spiritual maturity. But tonight, God is asking you to simply look at Jesus. Whether you can move forward or not, that's not the issue. Remember, you are indwelt by his spirit. You are empowered by his spirit. And the work is of his spirit. And so tonight, with your circumstances and situations, look to Jesus. He is leading you into your harvest tonight. He is the redeemer of your soul. Two thoughts. I want to remember our application. We're done. But there's two things I want to leave with you before we worship. And as we worship, I want to remind you that we have communion up here. Please come up and take the elements. Take them back to where you're sitting. Take them as you, take them as you desire. Also, there will be people up here to pray for you. But I want you to remember two things. One, you're never alone. You are never alone. You're never alone. Deuteronomy 31.6, be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them. That is the inhabitants of the land. For it is the Lord, Yahweh, your God, who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Secondly, God is guiding your steps. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will, stri- he will make, your straight, make straight your path. Pray with me. So worship team comes out. Let's pray. Father, tonight, afresh, I know, I'm, I know many of my friends here tonight have worked a long, hard day, but tonight, do what they can't do by your spirit. There are circumstances that seem like mountains. There are circumstances that have been there for a long time. Father, tonight, show your people your harvest. Show your people redemption. Show your people deliverance. Show your people. Show them tonight, Lord. You don't have to prove it to us, Lord, but we want to look to you. We want to only see you because we recognize that nothing else matters. And that you, you are the one who would die for us. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our midweek revive service held Wednesday evenings. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.